0: Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth, while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now, I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm talking to James Hickman. James is an international entrepreneur, investor, and prolific traveler who has visited over 120 countries on all seven continents. He has started or acquired businesses all over the world, including his own private bank, a prominent retail brand in Australia, and an organic, self-sufficient farm in Chile, just to name a few. He holds multiple foreign passports and offshore bank accounts, stores gold in different vaults around the world, and grows his money using off-the-radar investments that pay way above normal yields. James, who often writes as Simon Black is also the founder of Sovereign Man, a community teaching tens of thousands of people how to build a free and prosperous life, one that protects your money from bankrupt governments, the volatile stock market, and world-changing events like the 2008 financial crisis or the most recent global pandemic. In this episode, James shares experiences from his life and travels and the unique strategies you can use to achieve more freedom, make more money, and keep more of it, regardless of your personal circumstances or what economic problems are facing the world. One more thing before we get to today's interview. If you haven't already, be sure to hit the subscribe button on Apple or wherever you listen so new episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. Thanks for listening, and without further delay, my conversation with James Hickman. Well, James, I'm excited to have you on the show. I've actually been really looking forward to this for a handful of weeks now since we started communicating and finding a time, and I'm just thrilled because I've enjoyed all the things that you've taught and put out into the world over the years, so thanks for joining us here.
1: Yeah, I appreciate it. I know we were going to do this a couple of weeks ago and then the that storm hit and you, you guys were, I think, buried for a couple of days. So I'm glad it worked out.
0: Yeah, there is no doubt. It, this definitely is working out for the better because uh, we got hit pretty bad with it. So I'm so thrilled about all the things that you've been up to and all the moves that you've made over the years. You're one of the most well-traveled people that I know. And I think it would be fun to start with where all you've been in the world? How many countries have you been to? Because you of anyone I know, anyone inside my network, I believe you are likely the most traveled person.
1: Well, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, Travel is a little bit like like wealth and like health and even popularity and a lot of things where you think you're at a certain level and then you know you might meet somebody else. And I remember thinking like I've been to a lot of places and then I go and hang out with Jim Rogers and and I'm like, well, this guy's been to way more places than I've been. But I think I'm up to probably about 122 countries at this point. I've been to all seven continents. I've got my favorites. I got my least favorites. But it's definitely whoever said the, you know, it's a small world. I don't think ever actually traveled all that much because the world is actually a really big place. And I think there's just a ton of interesting things to see. But more importantly, a lot of uh, just wonderful, amazing people, a lot of really interesting opportunity uh, everywhere. And, and that's, that's the reason that I do it.
0: Though so I haven't really been doing it as much of it obviously uh, over the last year or so. Well, and you've lived in a lot of places around the world as well. And I think that's cool because you have such a familiarity with all these different jurisdictions, the different laws and rules in many different countries around the world. And I just think that you're so well versed on that front. I'm curious to know Kind of what the inspiration there was, and then also in addition to that, where all you have lived. Uh,
1: I've lived in a lot of places. I mean, I've lived in Thailand. I've lived in Uruguay. I've lived in uh, you know Panama. I've lived in a lot of different places. I spent a lot of time living in in Chile. Uh, Right now, I live in Puerto Rico. Although at the moment, I'm actually uh, I'm actually in Chile. Uh, In Chile, here I I started. Most of places I went, there's always a specific reason. In Chile, uh, m- most of the time, is actually kind of business or financial-related. In Chile, I started uh, a large agriculture business several years ago, and uh, it's it's just really uh, grown at an incredible pace. And I'm back here, actually, at one of our farms. So if you hear, there's a rooster hanging out just right outside of my window uh, a little bit ago. So if you hear some weird animal farm noises, that's because <laughs> that's where I am right now. But at the moment, my primary residence is actually in Puerto Rico. I'm there for uh, obviously for the tax reasons. I'm sure your listeners probably know about that. I've been living there for a couple of years. It's been great. Puerto Rico is really interesting for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of interesting business opportunities there, which I'm happy to discuss if if you like.
0: Yeah, I think that'd be fun. You know, I'm heading there this weekend, and uh, we have a bunch of mutual friends that I'm going to be connecting with. And so, you know, when I think about Puerto Rico, I think of all the great tax advantages. I had John Lee Dumas on the show a handful of episodes ago, and he shared some of them. But I know that your your wealth of knowledge here is, is pretty vast. And you've even run sessions and seminars on the specific perks. So yeah, I'd love to know the reason why you decided this was a good spot, at least for the time being.
1: Sure. Well, the, the basic ones I think
0: that most people know about that know anything about
1: Puerto Rican tax incentives are the individual and then the business uh, incentive. The OG guys uh, who've been there for a while still call them Act 20 and Act 22. Now they've changed and they've rolled everything under, I think, Act 60, the incentives code. But basically there's the, you know, if you live there as an investor and you're kind of primarily like a capital gains guy or capital gains gal, which would include cryptocurrency and stocks and you know, these sorts of things, the people that are traders and that, yeah, sure, you get that tax-free because the Internal Revenue Code deems that when your capital gains that are not capital gains from real estate, but capital gains from financial securities, the source of that income is the residency of the investor. So if your residency is in Puerto Rico, then you don't owe any federal capital gains tax on that. But in fact, you would owe Puerto Rican capital gains But they provide this incentive to cut that capital gains tax to zero. And then, of course, if you have a qualifying business, that qualifying business pays just 4% uh, corporate tax, a tiny marginal rounding error for municipal tax, depending on where it's located. And then that's it. There's no dividend tax or anything like that. The one that people don't know as much about is, uh, and frankly, it's one that's generally for wealthier people. And this is uh, something called an international financial entity, which is essentially a bank. And you can actually go and structure your own bank and do a lot of really interesting things with a, with a Puerto Rican bank. I started one several years ago. It's been uh, actually very beneficial in a lot of different ways or a lot of both tangible and, in, and intangible benefits to having your own bank. For me, part of it was I just got so sick of the, the banking system and the, just the constant issues and challenges. I said, screw it, I'm going to start my own bank. And the biggest thing, too, is that you can do a lot of things with a bank and that bank, just like the, the business incentive in Puerto Rico, is also only subject to a 4% uh, corporate income tax. So there's a lot of benefits and a lot of just different. There's so many tax incentives in Puerto Rico. And what we've also found is that the, the, the government there is, is quite flexible in terms of creating new tax incentives. If there's something that would incentivize a new industry to come to Puerto Rico, they're actually very flexible in creating tax incentives to create incentives for people to come and invest in Puerto Rico, Because By God, they need it there, big time.
0: That's awesome. Well, I'm gonna be looking at some real estate there, not because I'm planning to move, I'm just really fascinated. And uh, when I had JLD on the show, he said he bought his $2 million home completely with the tax savings that he made by moving there. And I mean, that's substantial. Yeah. I'd love to get into more of the bank because you and I, we've talked at length at different events about the banking industry, the issues with banking. One of my previous guests, Don Wenner, also started his own bank. He runs DLP Capital. And uh, just it talks about just the myriad of reasons to have your own bank. But I'd love to know, from your point of view, why you got into it. Why is this a good move? fundamentally, I totally get it. But I'm curious if there are ancillary benefits that other people may not consider. And even the pros of banking with someone like you that is going to foster the money of your clients a lot better than your traditional bank.
1: Well, it's not for everyone. That's for sure. Uh, starting your own bank is definitely not for everyone. It's something you, you've got to have. a You have to have definitely a, a more substantial level of wealth, level of capital for it to make sense. Uh, but if you're, you know, if you're kind of at that point, because it, it, look, it's regulated. It's it's not to say like, oh, it's in Puerto Rico. There's nobody. Doing. No, there's, there is a, you know, there's a, you've got a state regulator, you know, we deal with federal agencies. I've got a compliance people within my own bank. I mean, it, it's, it's a real endeavor. And so the, you know, the, the costs associated with maintaining the structure are not insignificant, So obviously you need to be doing enough business out of the bank for it to be worthwhile. But if you are, it really makes it, it can make a big difference. Some of it goes back to, if you look at the tax benefits, it goes back to the things that you can do with Puerto Rico's tax incentives. And some of that stuff is sort of limited to, for example, under the Individual Incentives Act, you've got capital gains uh, that can be tax-free, but other types of income, for example, interest income. Can be taxable if it comes outside of Puerto Rico. Well, if you can, if you do some different types of investing, and you can route that in in a complete, you know, if you can do it legally and run it through a, a bank, for example, banks are in the business of making loans and generating investment income. So there's certain ways that you can actually route a lot of that income through a bank, and that suddenly that income is subject to four percent tax as well. And just personally as an investor, I like to do loans. I like to do um, anything where I've got physical, legal, or administrative custody over an asset that has, uh, you know, where there's a, a, a robust secondary market and, and a you know quoted exchange where I can actually understand the value of this. And so doing those sorts of things through a bank has been actually very interesting. And another thing that's just sort of a, a really interesting benefit of having a bank is that once you have one, I was I was actually quite pleasantly surprised how much deal flow started coming my way just because people knew that I had a bank. So people go, oh yeah, you know, James has a bank. Let's call him up and see if he wants to do this deal. So that was actually very interesting as well. And and I think for people that think in the way, I mean, there's a lot of businesses that I've started and and things that I've been involved with over the years. And I remember a friend of mine who was a fund manager, I think he sort of accurately described it. He said, you know, the way you're structured, it's sort of like, you're like a family office that owns a bank. And I'm like, yeah, that's actually sort of the way way it works. And so if you think in, in that, level, it actually might make a lot of sense to consider starting something like that.
0: Well, that's amazing. And I, I know it gives so many more advantages. And to just, I, I mean, Puerto Rico in general is about as good as you can get for being a US citizen and needing to live somewhere else to minimize the, the tax liability that you have. I mean, I, I don't know if there's anywhere else better unless you were to renounce your citizenship, right? There are
1: some very complicated structures involving double tax treaties and certain, let's just say, European countries that, you know, things that, you know, they're very, very complicated. But I mean, for I think just sort of the average person and even I'd say the you know, typical very even wealthy person, you're just not going to be Puerto Rico. It's that simple. You just, you know, you move there and you live on, on the beach and you, you your tax bill basically gets sliced down by, you know, 90, 95%. You might even possibly even 100%. So it's, it's hard to beat. It's really hard to beat.
0: That's awesome. Well, I know it's been a long time coming on your bank because I believe you said it took four years to get everything through. And I was talking, I actually mentioned that to Don Wenner when I was doing his episode, and his bank took less, but he anticipated that you had other regulatory measures that you had to cross, potentially being in Puerto Rico or potentially for the type of licensing or whatever the level of certification you were looking for your bank, I'd be curious to know why it took so long.
1: Well, uh, we had some specific needs for one that, that probably don't apply to most people. So if you're just somebody that, for example, wants to have a centralized treasury function, uh, because you're maybe you're an entrepreneurial type person, you have multiple businesses, and you want to create a tax-efficient centralized treasury for all of your different companies, it doesn't really take that long. For, you know, if you have greater needs it's going to take a lot longer. But honestly, the biggest one was, it was Hurricane Maria, because after when when Hurricane Maria kind of came around, we had just started to get everything ready. And then basically, the entire division, the regulator just shut down, they just went away. And, and, and you know, Hurricane Maria had a massive impact on Puerto Rico for the longest time, so much so that so many government offices just closed for a really long time. And then there was I mean, unfortunately, the the commissioner, uh, I think he was in place at that time, actually passed away. They had an interim commissioner who then got replaced by somebody else. And so there's a, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of turnover and, and just a lot of those sorts of issues that went on that, you know, a lot of this stuff kept happening and we're just like, oh my God, this is. And then uh, we had something with one of the federal agencies where the specific structure of our bank, we had to go and make changes to the structure in order to comply with with uh, a federal regulation that, that gave us uh, access to that agency. So there's a lot of complications that are very specific to my bank. But uh, for, I think for most people, it, it shouldn't take that long if it was something they were interested in doing.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And uh, I just think it's awesome you were able to do it. So congratulations there. That's yeah. a long process, but I'm sure it just feels so great to know that you were able to accomplish it because there are so many benefits, not just to you, but to the people you serve to the people that are going to use your bank, that you're going to be a good steward of that money. And I'd love to kind of dive into just some of the just horrible ways that banks manage and invest money as a general rule and how risky they are, because most people have no clue that the bank that is holding their money is investing in derivatives and uh, high risk stuff, and that their solvency ratio is in a very scary place, especially a lot of these US banks. Can you speak to that?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it is a little bit weird that when you think about it, we just were little kids and we think banks are safe. This is what we're told. This is everybody knows banks are safe and and you grow up and suddenly, you know, whatever, you get a job or you start a business or something and you just go to a bank and you sign some papers and you just start giving these people your money. And under no, you would never do that under any other circumstances. It was some some guy comes up to you on the street and said, "Hey, let me have your life savings." You go, "Here you go," and then you know walk away. Of course, you wouldn't do that. You'd want to check the person out. You'd want to get a much better understanding and a, you know build a relationship and so forth. And yet, with banks, we just sort of blindly go in, assume that everything is safe. And what's really weird about it is that. Even though over and over and over again, there's just a constant news flow of these guys that are screwing us, and they're lying to us, and they're stealing from us, or they they engage in just wantonly reckless, irresponsible behavior, and then go to the taxpayer and to with their hat in hand and say, "We're too important; you need to give us more money because we're too important to go out of business." I mean, it's completely ridiculous when you think about it. They spy on their customers. They've gotten to the point now where the most innocent transactions, the most innocuous transactions now are met with derision and suspicion, constantly hassling people, demanding unnecessary paperwork. And everybody's got their own stories. And, you know, I've got a ton of them, you know, myself. I've got got more or less kind of like one account that I use in the U.S. because it's connected to my family, to my parents. And, you know, if I need to give money to people, whatever, it makes it very easy that way. And I remember I was making a, a transfer to my sister, this was not too long ago, and the bank made this big deal about it. You know, and I'm like, I've been a customer of yours since, you know, for like 25 years, at least. My sister's been a customer for 25 years. You know, I mean, this is not really that much money. And it was just this scrutiny, you know, over, you know, over this sort of thing. It's just completely ridiculous. And then you, you know, then you actually start peeling back. Some of the different layers of the onion and, and start diving into some of the bank's financial statements and you start seeing well hey wait a minute let's take a look at this stuff that's on your books and the first thing you know and most of you know the bigger banks they publish this stuff they have you know quarterly financial reports and balance sheets and regulatory reports that they have to file and so most people never look at this stuff very few bank customers actually look at any of these things in some cases i think they should uh, i think people really ought to check out their financial partner and you know if you really look pretty deep you might not like what you see um, in some respects there's very little transparency so for example a big bank might just have on its balance sheet you know they've got 800 billion dollars in loans and that's it that's all they say it's just it's just loan and you go well wait a minute you know what what kind of loans are we talking about what's the collateral how much is the collateral worth who's the borrower what's the creditworthiness of the borrower and what are the terms and when can I expect? Because you're doing this with my money. This is my money. This is our money that they're doing this with and they don't really provide any of those sorts of details. And I think that finance in general demands a level of transparency that basically doesn't exist in modern banking.
0: It's such a fascinating thing, like hearing you break it down and having this experience myself. So this is what really bothers me about banks. When I put my money in a bank, and then I want to take my money out of the bank. And if you've never tried this, try taking 10000 or 15000 or $20,000 in cash out at one time. Well, number one, if it's over $10,000, there's going to be a report to the IRS and that kind of flags you. But number two, often these banks don't even have that much cash on hand to be able to give you. And they say, we need you to plan ahead of time. And then the third thing that can happen and has happened to me is they say, Well, why do you need it? Well, what do you mean, why do I need it? It's my money. I'm giving it to you. I'm lending it to you so that you can make money on it and and safeguard it. So you're making your money on it. But why should there be any, like, why should you be able to stop me from getting my own money? And then that your account can be frozen at any time for any reason. I mean, it really is just crazy. And this coming from these institutions, even the biggest name banks that are out there, that have had some of the largest financial scandals in the history of the U S it really is absurd. Yeah. I mean, it's probably surprising for some people to realize that when you make a deposit,
1: it's actually legally, it's not even your money anymore. Now it's the bank's money. You don't actually have money anymore. You have a claim on the bank's balance sheet. You're, you become basically an unsecured creditor of the bank. That's it's so it's not your money. It's the bank's money. And that's a that's a weird thing for people, to. And which is why they, you know, they feel freely entitled to freeze you out of your account or demand, you know, pepper you with 20 questions about what what you want to do with this money that you loan to them that in theory should be your money. But, you know, legally, it's not legally. It's the bank. And you look at all of this. All these problems, all these challenges, all this risk, this crazy things they're doing with, with the money. I mean, we, some things we know that's crazy they're doing with the money. We saw this blow up back in 2008. If you look at the balance sheets, you see now that most banks keep very little cash as a percentage of customer deposits. They keep very little liquid assets as a percentage of customer deposits. They keep very little capital as a percentage of the total balance sheet. They, you know, I mean, that's so many scandals where they're, you know, again, they're lying, they're stealing from customers, they're not honoring contracts, they're milking stuff and they're, they're, you know, charging exorbitant fees. And what do we get in exchange for all that 0.03%. That's, that's the big prize. That's the big prize. That's what we get for all this hassle and all this trouble. You just, you know, at a certain point, a rational person's got to look at that and say, there's just got to be a better way. This is ludicrous.
0: Well, and to your point, part of what the banks hold is so they'll take part of your deposits and they'll put it in bonds or short term, you know, like T-bills. And then they're earning a good return on that. When you can go straight to Treasury Direct, right, or or, there are many different places where you can go directly to get these things to earn a higher percentage than what the bank is doing with that portion of your money. And then with the other portion of your money, they're investing in risky things, high risk derivatives, oftentimes, uh, which we saw in the last financial crisis. And then on top of that, when you want to get your money out, it's guilty until proven innocent. It's the opposite yeah. of our you know, legal system. It, it really is just such a peculiar experience.
1: It really is. And again, but it's one of those things that few people actually ever think about it. Most people have felt the pain, but few people have really ever kind of paused and said, wait a minute, this is nuts. And, and, you know, there's gotta be an alternative because we've been sort of programmed practically since birth that like, this is just what it is. You just put your money in the bank and, and, you know, it's, it's just in a way it's just like, it's like being in a bad marriage or something like that. We just feel like there's no alternative. I just have to stay with this person that constantly abuses me. You know, it's kind of what it is with, you know, with banks. And they say, oh well, this competition. There's not really any competition. They're all the same. Nobody can really claim that there's a whole lot of difference between you know one big institution and another big institution. They're all sort of part of the same oligopoly. They all uh, invest in the same you know, sort of thing. And, you know, you're talking about bonds and the things they invest in. There's just another great example of of things that they provide very little transparency about. But it is interesting when, if you think about the setup just as a thought experiment, right? You lend money to a bank. When you make a deposit, you're essentially loaning your money to a bank. And the, in theory, you're supposed to be able to demand that deposit back from That's Why they call it a demand deposit. You're supposed to be able to get that money back whenever you want. And yet the banks take that money your money, my money, our money, and they go and they loan that stuff out, whether they buy bonds, now they're making loans to the federal government, or they're making, you know, some, some mortgage for 30 years, or they buy a, you know, 30-year government bond or a 10-year government treasury note. And so they've got these, now they've got, they've tied our money up for potentially decades, and yet I'm supposed to be able to come and whatever I want and pull my money out. And you look at it and go, how is that even possible? Then you could basically turn my money into a 30-year asset, but have a short-term day-by-day liability back to me. It just doesn't compute. And so you know, the entire system is sort of built on that. And when you add in all of the, the fraud, the scandal, the mistreatment, the pitifully low interest rates, all those things, again, it just doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah. And then you've got this archaic and antiquated system of just banking in general. Right. Like you can't wire on the weekends. We're closed on a Sunday. You can't wire at 3 (laughs) a.m. It's like it's
1: it's 3 PM. It's 3 PM. You can't do what you want with your with your money anymore. I mean, it's like well, yeah. I mean, you know, give me a break. I mean, this is it's like it's 1875. You know, I always joke about this. It's like, you know, they send a wire transfer, they still act like they're they're putting a bunch of cash and in satchels on Pony Express and riding it across the country to to deliver this. This is like Everything about this is ludicrous. And I remember when I when I started my bank and we started dealing with some of these, let's say, big, you know, international intermediaries. One of these organizations actually told us and they said, Well, uh, now what we need you to do is go out and find a computer that has Windows seven on it, uh, because that's what our whole core platform runs on. We're like, wait a minute, Windows seven. This is an operating system that has been abandoned by Microsoft. There's not even service for security anymore. <laughs> this is like, I mean, you, you might as well use DOS or like Windows 95 or something like that. Like what are these people doing. And, you know, and yet they, they run countless transactions that exchange information and international wires and so forth through this. Honestly, it's an embarrassment. It's an embarrassment.
0: Well, I. Really appreciate your perspective there. And I'd love to change gears because you started a company called Sovereign Man. And I think it's one of the coolest companies out there. And it's such a great look at becoming a sovereign individual. And I'm curious, what made you want to decide that to, to start that company? And you started out with a pen name of Simon Black. And for anyone that gets your newsletters and your emails, you always sign it Simon Black. So I'd love to know the story and the origination of both Simon Black and Sovereign Man.
1: Uh, well, you know, it's it's less interesting probably than you might think it is. But I'll uh, put it this way. If I had known it was going to last so long, I would have made some different decisions. But when I first sort of came into, into the idea of sort of writing and things like that, I'd never really done anything like that before. But the guys that sort of kind of more or less recruited me into it, they are the ones that made the suggestion, oh, you know, you should use a pen name. I was just coming out of the intelligence business. I was in the military, you know, and they thought that was interesting. And, you know, we use an alias, just like an intelligence thing. Like, yeah, okay, fine. And, and you know, that's, that's when it started. And that was 2007, uh, I think is actually, I think how far back that goes. And so, you know, like I said, if I had known then what I know now or known that it would last so long, i probably make some different decisions. But uh, at this point, I mean, that was that was a long time ago. And, and over the years, uh, I have started a lot of different businesses. And, and you know, now, again, we kind of run like a family office and start companies, invest in, in, in a lot of other companies, try and mentor entrepreneurs, uh, you know, that are in a lot of different industries, but, uh, Sauron is still, you know, we, we still write three, four, five days a week, uh, sometimes, and, and put a lot of content out to people. But yeah, I think the, the, the origin story is probably less interesting perhaps than you might think it is.
0: Well, I love the name. I think it's really cool to me. It's like James Bond esque, And, uh, the name <laughs> is, is so catchy. Well, I think that's
1: what they were going for back in 2007. So, you know, that's, so if that's the case, then maybe mission accomplished. But uh, no, I mean, I'm just James. And as I do business and, and so forth, I mean, Simon Black is just a, just a pen name. And it's one, like I said, I'm surprised that... Uh, it, I think when I got started as a, in that business, I didn't necessarily have the long-term view that I have now on on business and investment and so forth. It was just kind of something that I that I fell into. Uh, but I enjoy it. And I think as a business, it's been very interesting. And I, I think the best thing about the business is the people that have been attracted to it that I've met, our customers, our members, you obviously know so many of them. I mean, they're just some of the most wonderful people, you know, like-minded folks. And ultimately it's, I, I think our whole ethos is just really about freedom, personal freedom and personal responsibility, self-reliance. And I think these are very, frankly, very logical, very sound uh, messages. It's not, you know, any, any kind of crazy conspiracy theory. I think it's very rational. I was, you know, tell people it's like, you know, look, I mean, you know, you read our stuff. It's like we say, for example, you know, the, the Treasury Secretary of the United States puts it in black and white, you know, in their annual report that Social Security is going to run out of money in the not too distant future. So, you know, this isn't a conspiracy theory. This is the Treasury Secretary of the United States. And so anybody that plans on retiring at some point in the future probably ought to know that the Treasury Secretary is telling you that they're going to have to cut benefits. There's just no way around it. And so, again, this isn't some crazy, lunatic conspiracy theory. This is, this is the Treasury Secretary of the United States. And so all we kind of step in and say, look, here are some things to think about. I mean, you know, here are some ways to set aside more money for retirement. Here are some structures you can set up to create more uh, tax benefits for yourself to be able to do that. So that's really what it is. It's just an ethos of, of personal responsibility, self-reliance, logic, reason, and, and personal freedom.
0: Well, I love it. I've, I've been the recipient of just great content and great relationships. I'm part of your total access, obviously. And, you know, we've gotten a chance to spend some time together because of that. And I, I just think it's cool. And I've been able to invest in a bunch of deals with you. And I am very pleased about that because these are companies I would have never known about. I'm curious, what are for our listeners and for our viewers, what are the types of companies you like to invest in? I mean, you're, you kind of have a very wide, range of investments. And I feel like you're really good at looking at trends. I I talk about this in one of my chapters, uh, one of my 10 commandments is invisible deals. And that's spotting trends and uh, seeing new technologies and figuring out where the status quo may get interrupted and transformed. So I'd love that you, you know, just to hear more of your thought process on investing in general.
1: Well, I think in a nutshell, I look for, you know, and before I do any investment, I always think, you know, there's either is it something that I'm investing where I'm a minority stakeholder or is it something where I'm acquiring the entire business? And frankly, to me, it's, it's kind of the same, you know, and, and if I look at it in the same way, if I were investing in the stock market, you know, I wouldn't want to buy a single share of a business unless I wanted to buy all the shares of the business. You know, is this a company that I would actually want to own? And that's always the first question that I want to, that I ask myself, is this a business that I want to be in? And uh, that's going to depend a lot on whether it's uh, the industry that I want to be in. There are certain industries that I specifically targeted where, you know, years ago I said, I want, you know, I want to have an AI business. I want to have a machine learning business. I definitely want to be very deep into different cryptocurrency businesses. And, And, you know, some of these, some of these pretty obvious trends that, you know years ago we really wanted to get out in front of and but it's also is this the the business that I want to be in do I want to be in this business it also has to do with the fundamentals of the actual business not just the industry you know so is this sort of the the cash flow profile that I'm looking for as an investor in general I think everybody's got different investment objectives I like cash flow to me cash flow I think every business should be should be profitable and I think we you know some years ago they started to be this bizarre Shift in investing where it didn't matter. You know, we work. It's the more money we lose, the more you know popular uh, our, our investment becomes. The higher our valuation. All these things just didn't make sense to me. And we see this a lot with a lot of frankly very popular stocks that you know, in many respects, either the more money they lose, or maybe they make a tiny little bit of money, and the CEO comes on Twitter and says some stuff, and the stock price goes through the roof. And it's not real you know it's not what business is supposed to be which is generating strong positive free cash flow and i use that term very deliberately because from an accounting perspective there is a difference between free cash flow and net income or net profit and i focus on businesses with strong free cash flow frankly a good position to be in is where you have a business with great free cash flow but actually negative net income because then it takes away your tax liability but you get to put a lot of money in your pocket that's a great position to be in and sometimes for example, real estate gives you that opportunity. You can have because of depreciation expenses and so forth. You can actually be positive free cash flow, but negative profit. So you don't have a tax liability. But um, So these are the things that I look at in terms of, do I want to be in this business? The second question I ask, especially if I'm making a, a passive investment or minority investment is, are these the people that I want to be in business with? And that's probably the most important, frankly, is uh, I only want to be in business with, with with people that I think are, you know, are, you know, I go back to, I, I went to the military academy in, in 1995, Norman Schwarzkopf gave a great speech to the Corps of Cadets at West Point, And he said, uh, you know, talk about leadership in the 21st century. He said, leaders of the 21st century have two characteristics. They have competence and they have character. You know, they're good at what they do and they're trustworthy, reliable people of integrity. And those are exactly the two things that I look at. In, in terms of the entrepreneurs and the founders. And, uh, you know, so when I, when I assess essentially these people that I want to be a business with then the third tenant, really is, is this a price I'm willing to pay? And, and that gets down to valuation and, and things, which has been, you know, most of which have been very lofty. I was just looking at a deal. I, mean, I look at deals all the time, which is, you know, this one came across my desk I mean, you know, people that want $50 million for, you know, business that's, you know, still in early stage form. I saw one recently, it was $200 million for, you know, very early stage business. I mean, this this is some really ludicrous valuations out there, but uh, those are kind of really the three, you know, key tenants that that I look at. And, you know, by God, I, I, I don't always get it right, but that's what we
0: strive for. Well, I think it's so important to have your investment tenants or criteria. You know, my my book is based on having my 10 commandments or my 10 criteria, and you've got yours. And that's why you can invest and it spans over different industries. So, you know, we've invested in agriculture. We've invested in junior gold mining. We've invested in technology, in in Amazon for Eastern Europe. Yeah, emerging frontier markets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's Mm -hmm. just so cool. And music royalties. I mean, there's just so much stuff we've been able to do and this is—we're making investments that are outside of the United States. So for me, I live in the United States, so I feel like it's really good to have exposure outside the borders of my own country. And I know you're a big proponent of that as well.
1: I am. I mean, frankly, I've spent most of my uh, adult life outside of the United States, from the time that I was in the military uh, through through today, and. You know, again, it's it. It might not be for everybody, but uh, for me, it's been great. Uh, you know, different cultures, different languages, different experiences, and and uh, you know, for me, it's been a lot of fun, very comfortable uh, overseas. But I think as well, from an investment perspective, in many respects, there can be a lot of uh, you know very unique and often overlooked opportunity abroad. The agriculture business here in Chile is actually a great example of that. You know, when you look at it. What we sell is you know something that's has a, a global market price. And yet, as a producer, um, well we have you know production, we have distribution. Well, it's a, it's a, it's, a, it's a large and in many respects vertically integrated business now. Uh, but just as a producer, for example, I look at between what we produce and what our you know competitors in, in you know the northern hemisphere produce, their land costs are five to ten times as much. their labor costs can be five to ten times as much. Their input costs are more expensive, transportation costs to be more expensive. Uh, and yet the price that we get per kilo or per ounce or per whatever are, are basically the same. Actually, because we're in the southern hemisphere during times of and we produce during times of global scarcity, our prices are actually better. And so the the margins are just so much better. And it's just an example of of you know looking at Agriculture, which I think from a macro perspective has a, has a bright future. If you look at inflation, if you look at population growth, look at all these different things, I think agriculture really has a lot of very very positive uh, growth fundamentals. But looking at that from an overseas perspective, you can see actually now you've got you've got a sector that has a strong future for a lot of different reasons. But now you're in a place where the margin is so much higher, simply because you look overseas instead of domestically. So, it's a, it's a very interesting example of, I think, how broadening your horizons. Again, the world is a big place and it's worth looking at when making some of these decisions and at least keeping that in the back of your mind and saying, is this something that I might be able to do better, more efficiently, uh, or with higher margins overseas?
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's also good to realize, you know, as you're investing, that times change. And just because you may live in uh, a nation that is a superpower today doesn't mean that that's going to maintain. In the future, and we're already seeing some warning signs. I'm real curious to get your take on the state of the economy because I know this is something that you are passionate about, that you have a lot of perspective on. I mean, there's a lot of different directions we could go, but I'd love to know just preliminarily what your thoughts are.
1: If you mean specifically in the US, I think, look, in the US, there is an extraordinary abundance of bright, talented, sharp people, you know, who go out and create value and and do amazing things. They develop technology and they build businesses. And so, you know, there's bright and talented professionals and there's hardworking people. At the end of the day, that's really what an economy is. It's about people producing stuff, whether that's goods or services. And so long as you've got that kind of population, I think, of very smart, talented, you know, willing people that can do that work, that's that's really how an economy is built. And I, I still believe that in the United States. The issue with the U.S., of course, is that there's so many things, I think, economically that exist now that are completely artificial, where you've got the Federal Reserve that has conjured trillions and trillions of dollars out of thin air that just sprinkle it all over the economy, that inflates asset prices. You've got the federal government that's created an enormous amount of debt that weighs very heavily on not only current, but future taxpayers and future generations of, of workers. You've got unfunded pension Programs. I mentioned Social Security earlier. I mean, this is not a small problem. This is, this is a problem that literally goes into the tens of trillions of dollars. Again, not my math. This is the Treasury Secretary of the United States who says. So there are a lot of really, I, I think, difficult things, I think both from a fiscal and monetary perspective, that present enormous challenges now and into the future. The biggest one of those, I think, really is just the the issue with the, the, the currency itself, with the dollar. And and it's gotten to the point where they've kept interest rates at effectively zero for so long. And this is what has caused people to... I mean, man, you could go out and buy a house now and get a mortgage. And I was just looking not too long ago when the rates were like... You know, had a two handle on it. And I I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And, and it's gotten to the point now where if people suspect... There was just, I mean, just in the last week, there was this fury in financial markets because the 10-year Treasury note got up to, you know, what, a point and a half? And this is considered outrageously high now to be 1.5%. And, you know, people's heads explode. Financial markets go into into turmoil because 1.5%. And this is extremely dangerous now because they've reached the point where at least financial markets, At a minimum, and more more than likely now, most of the economy, the real estate market, businesses, I mean, and so many businesses, the commercial debt in the United States, business debt, corporate debt is is, is obviously at an all-time high. And so you got all these companies that are just borrowing, borrowing, borrowing. And all this stuff depends on ultra-cheap interest rates. And so if if interest rates go up to even just 1.5%, everybody loses their mind. And so, if you get to the point where even you know this rate goes up to even just something ridiculous as three percent, what happens? I mean, now we we might be looking at a major crash. A lot of industries just going under. Uh, and I don't like to talk in terms like that, where I use words like crash and so forth. But just looking at the you know again the fury that we've seen in financial markets, and now how dependent, like a junkie, so many industries are on ultra cheap interest rates. It doesn't leave the policymakers, really any room to raise rates very much at all. And this is a huge problem because if we start seeing signs of inflation, which already exists, there's a lot of signs of inflation already, and rent prices, and food prices, and a lot of different things. They don't have the ability to go and raise rates to, to prevent that because then the financial markets, you know, in many respects, have, you, know, you have these huge declines. You have a lot of companies that go out of business as a result. On the flip side, if there's another you know big recession, they don't have the ability to cut rates anymore because they're already at zero. So they're just stuck where they are right now. When you have the largest, most powerful central bank in the world, they can't go up and they can't go down. That's just not a great position to be in from a macroeconomic perspective. And so that's the, that's the kind of stuff that I think about and, and tend to write about.
0: Yeah, and the greatest deficit in the history of the nation, right? I mean, we're the talking the, <laughs> the history of the world. I mean, this is absolutely nuts. And and most people just are completely clueless as to what trillions of dollars actually looks like. And yeah. we're not talking about just whatever you see and hear. There's also the unfunded liabilities that exist right. too. That need to that's be right. taken into account. And then you hear about the government talking about wiping out all this student debt, which is one of their number one revenue sources. So it, it is really fascinating. I'd love your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, that one is quite interesting because just as a, a small correction, so on the on the federal government balance sheet, uh, where they have like any business or, or individual, they've got assets and liabilities, the largest financial asset on the government's balance sheet is student debt. So this is essentially money that the federal government has loaned out to young people across America and said, here, use this money to go and fund your education, and then you'll pay us back over you know, 15 years or whatever. And now they're saying they want to forgive that debt, which sounds nice in theory, but essentially this means that there's like a trillion dollars that's just going to wipe off the federal government balance sheet. And you just got to look at this and go, dude, you already have, you're already at like a negative 50 trillion dollars so, I mean, maybe they figure, hey, we're already negative 50. What's another trillion? Like, who cares at that point? But again, it's, it's this kind of mentality that concerns me because they think, you know, you can't get from a from the dollar or the interest rate perspective. You can't go up and you can't go down. But the Federal Reserve says, well, we're just going to keep printing money as much as we want. And the federal government just keeps saying, we're just going to keep spending money as much as we want. And, you know, now there's just no limit to their largesse. And they say, we're going to have green new this and free that and universal that and all this stuff. And you go, man, somebody's got to pay for that at a certain point. But there's just no thought given. And they think they can go out to, you know, they think they can go out to wealthy people and say, oh, we're just going to tax rich people. Elizabeth Warren wants her two cents. And you look at and go, sorry, lady, this is just a drop in the bucket. I mean, you could go and tax two cents. You could tax five cents. You could tax 10 cents. You could literally confiscate all the wealth of the richest people that they despise so much, they could confiscate 100% of the wealth of all the rich people and it wouldn't make a dent in the problem. They wouldn't make a dent in the problem. And that's, I mean, that's the thing to think about. So we got all these, you know, wonderful, smart, hardworking, talented Americans and we've got these complete stooges in the government that are making these decisions have no clue uh, you know, what, what they're talking about, what they're doing. And, and honestly, it's disgusting. And, and you know, it's, I think it's pretty easy to understand why people feel so angry. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of some of the issues I think that people have. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's I think that's the situation that we're facing.
0: Well, and the way that you solve it is funny, right? You've got these states that are raising state taxes to astronomical levels. And instead of raising it on uh, the wealthy, it probably makes more sense to make your state more tax advantaged so that more people come in, right? So you make the pie bigger versus have people leaving but having a higher tax. So that That's really, you know, some of the solutions don't make a lot of sense to me. And it's fascinating. And so I love talking about this because I think it's important that people make decisions about investing and about their future based on these realities. These are not speculations. This is real. These numbers, you can look them up. These are published numbers. And I think it's good to just be in the know. And it also begs the question of what does that do if we have this fiat currency that is becoming devalued and debased every single day? We've got another 1.9 trillion that's about to get approved in some way, shape, or form here in, you know, a matter of days or weeks. And we've got about 40% 40% right now of the total amount of uh, dollars circulating in the US that were just created within the last 8 to 12 months and then you're going to have another 1.9 trillion to add to that so what does that bump it up to 45% something I mean it's it's really just such a high number so it begs the question of how relevant is cryptocurrency in this space where you can have something like bitcoin that can't be printed there is a finite amount that is made there's 21 million that's it and 5 million are, are probably lost forever so you know that lowers it and I'm curious your thoughts there i have
1: been pro crypto for i mean since 2000 and uh, i think 11 12 i first presented it to our audience i think in 12 or 13 so yeah i'm i'm obviously very on board uh, i think anybody who you, got, you can't look at these numbers and think, oh, no problem, nothing to see here. I mean, I, I mentioned earlier about thinking very long term, and I think that's more important than ever when you look at, and this isn't just in the U.S., the U.S. is the, right, the biggest culprit right now. And the, I mean, the deficit this year in the United States is probably going to be larger than the entire GDP of the United Kingdom. Wow. So you can't look at a number like that and go, what's the problem? You know, who, who cares? And if, you know, if you're somebody, especially if you're if you're younger or you have kids, you got to think about these things. You know, if you've got young kids, your kids are going to work their entire lives paying money into a system that isn't going to be there for them, uh, you know, when they're older. And, and so I think it's important to think about these things and educate yourself and, and, and your kids on these issues. And again, it's not just the United States. You know, the UK is in the same boat. France is in the same boat, Spain's the same boat, Italy's in the same boat, Japan's in the same boat. All these guys are, are in the same position. And so it really does mean that people have to start looking at alternatives. And I think cryptocurrency represents a lot of really wonderful things. And if you, if you go back to what we were talking about with the banking system, you have these people that are lying to you, robbing from you, taking your money, putting in things that are you know risky, potentially, but at a minimum, they don't even tell you where it's going. There's no transparency you've got all these things because you've got uh, the debts and the deficits and then cancel culture and all these other things like it's pretty easy to understand that people have lost confidence in the system you've got you know all sorts of bizarre propaganda with media COVID lockdowns all these sorts of things it's really easy to understand that people just lost confidence in the system the financial system and their politicians and congress and all these things and so when you start looking around, cryptocurrency becomes a very attractive alternative, I think, to say, well, here's something where I can be my own banker. You know, I can have a, a secret key just sitting in my safe and, and, you know, or on my phone or encrypted and in the cloud or whatever the case may be. And I don't need an intermediary standing in between me and my money. I don't need that suddenly with cryptocurrency. And so it solves that problem. I don't need to worry about this rock in a hard place that the central bank is in where they can't go up and they can't go down. You know, I don't need to worry about that because I have this other alternative where I've got some savings park. And so I, I think it can be, it can be very, I don't need to worry about the manipulation. I don't need to worry about all these other things. You have this thing that suddenly you have a lot more control over your finances. And I think that's really the idea is in general, you have a lot more control over everything in your life then they probably want you to believe you have a lot more control over your personal freedom. You have a lot more control over your health. You have a lot more control over your family, your children's education. You have a lot more control over your finances than any of these guys want you to believe. And I think cryptocurrency is one potentially attractive, you know, alternative to that for for a lot of folks that are willing to go through the steps to understand it and actually educate themselves. And this is a big caveat that I have to say, I think if anybody is, you know, just wants to blindly throw money at, at Bitcoin, Without taking uh, any effort to understand what it is, what it does, the advantages and disadvantages, the strengths and the weaknesses, and the problems and challenges, and 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 opportunities and potential demand and all that—I mean, really—that's just a stupid thing to do. You should really take your time to educate yourself and understand everything you possibly can about cryptocurrency, and understand that, by the way, Bitcoin is not the all-encompassing cryptocurrency. It's a whole lot. I mean, every one of these there's so many of them and every one of them has you know in theory unique technology and technological benefits and drawbacks and it's important to understand the differences in the technology behind each of those just in the same way that there's differences in the technology between Google and Facebook and you know a biotech company and, and and anything else so i just i had to i had to say that i think there's a very bright future for cryptocurrency but that doesn't mean just Blindly throwing your money into the marketplace is a good idea. I don't think blindly throwing your money anywhere is a good idea.
0: James, it's so well uh, put and well said, and I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that I think you're best known for, one of my favorite things that I've heard you talk about, is having a plan B. And we've just talked about all kinds of different things going on there. And some are bad, some are good, some are in the middle, some may have no bearing whatsoever, but. You talk about the importance of having a plan B, and I'd love to kind of uh, wrap our session up talking about that.
1: Sure. Well, look, I'm an optimist, and the reason I'm an optimist is I think you know you can you can wallow a lot in the, oh, the, the the debt and the bank and the dollar and the lockdowns and all of that, but uh, you know at the end of the day, all these things are just opportunities. They're opportunities to to, to make changes in your life. They're opportunities to to go out and do something different, seek out alternatives. And uh, this is not, as I often say, this is not exactly the first time in history that these sorts of things have happened. And every time, you know, this happens, we can kind of look and see it, you know, given historical examples, you know, we've kind of seen this movie before, and you you could probably look out into the future a little bit and say, well, nobody knows exactly what's going to happen and when. If we did, then, you know, we'd, you know, make bets on who's going to win the Super Bowl next year, but nobody knows. And we can't say for sure exactly what's going to happen, but we could probably imagine that continually posting these massive deficits that are larger than the GDP of the United Kingdom, probably not, you know, very healthy for, you know, long-term, you know, macroeconomic conditions, you know, having the, having an insolvent pension fund, having insolvent, I mean, insolvent every fund they've got, whether they're talking about the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation or the Highway Transportation Fund, or any of these things that, you know, all these things that are insolvent, probably not favorable for macroeconomic conditions. Conjuring trillions of dollars out of thin air, probably not favorable for macroeconomic conditions. And so if you can see these sorts of trends and understand that, the idea when I talk about this whole ethos behind having a plan B is It's not putting on your tinfoil hat and go and, you know, move up into the mountains and just whatever, be afraid and, and angry for the rest of your life. No, that's ludicrous. I mean, unless you just really love the mountains, in which case have at it, you know, but really it's just about saying, you know what, let's do the, you know, let's, let's look at the risks and let's do the things that put us in a position of strength, regardless of what happens or doesn't happen next. And I, you know, use these points to say, look, if you can do things, you know, if it's within your life or lifestyle, or if you have the opportunity, you you know what, I think maybe moving to Puerto Rico might be a good idea for me. And your life, you know, accommodates a move like that. And you think it makes sense. And, you know, congratulations. Now your tax bill has been slashed dramatically. It's hard to imagine there's a lot of downside to paying less tax. There's no downside there, right? And so these are the sorts of things I'm talking about. It puts you in a position of strength because now you have more money in your pocket because you've taken this completely legal approach to reduce your tax bill. There's no downside. You're not nobody's gonna wake up in the middle of the night and go, I'm so angry, I'm not paying enough taxes. So these are the things I'm talking about, putting yourself in a position of strength, regardless of what happens or doesn't happen next. Maybe having some things, some alternatives, uh, you know, to a currency that's between a rock and a hard place, maybe that makes sense. And so having a little bit of gold or cryptocurrency and so forth, to say, you know what, if the dollar Tanks, then boy, I'm glad I'm going to have these alternatives. But you know, even if things kind of blog along just fine, maybe there's not a whole lot of downside. Maybe I'm still okay holding, having a little bit of this asset that has a five thousand year history of value and marketability. Maybe I'm still okay having an asset, you know, that has a you know potentially a very bright future. It has some very interesting uh, disruptive advantages that could uh, put me in a better position with respect to these these banks that I don't like so much. And so these are things I think the decisions that people have to make. And there's a lot of options and opportunities. At the end of the day, it really starts with having the will to act and having the right knowledge and information. And so long as you have that, you know, you're always going to be okay. And you can have the, you might not be able to have confidence in the financial system. You you might not be able to have confidence in the government and politicians, but you can have a lot of confidence in yourself. And, you know, that really just begins with, I think, having the right information and the willingness to take action.
0: I love it, and you know another thing that I just love about having this plan B is even thinking to the point of second passports and having a passport you know a second passport by investment or by ancestry, and I know that you're big on that, and you know it's just it's planning for the worst, but expecting the best or hoping for the best, so that you're not living a life that is a very skeptical and uh, negative type of life, but it's planning just in case everything does go wrong that you and your family are taking care of and set up. I think that's awesome. And I love what you do. I think you've got an incredible podcast. I think that your newsletters and emails are just spot on. And I really thoroughly enjoy the education that you put out into the world. So thank you for joining us, James. And where can our listeners and viewers find more about you online?
1: Well, uh, I think with respect to this conversation, sure. I mean, people can go to com. Like I said, I'm not here to sell anything. So if people want to go to the website, that's fine. But uh, I was just happy to have the conversation. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a pleasure to catch up with you. again.
0: Well, and I think that's what's awesome about you. You know, before the call, you're like, I don't need to sell anything. and I'm like, but I love what you do. And I want to shout it from the rooftops because I think that the world needs to learn about it. But I love the way that you serve and the way that you teach people. So thank you for that, James. And I love ending my podcast the same way where I really want to challenge all of our listeners and all of our viewers to take some form of action today towards a life of financial freedom and towards a life by design that is purposeful, that really has a compelling vision of the future. So uh, I challenge you to take that step, take one step today and move towards financial freedom. So thank you so much again, James. And I'll look forward to seeing more of the amazing content you put out. And obviously at the next event that you hold for all of your investors. Good to see you, buddy.